0: Uh, Before we begin, I just want to acknowledge that this is a false sermon. I mean, everything I'm going to say is true, I believe, and real, but uh, the atmosphere is false. I'm here alone in my church. There's nobody here except me, which is uh, even less people than usual for a Sunday here in Clyde, and the reason being is I forgot to hit record when I preached on the actual Sunday. So this is a pretend sermon. I'm not sure if that matters to you out there in podcast land, but here we go. We're going to begin this morning not in Acts, but actually in Matthew 19. It's a pretty famous passage, but a pretty bizarre one as well. Simon, the disciple of, well, he was disciple at the time, Simon has just confessed Jesus as the Messiah, which was a groundbreaking moment for followers of the Son of God. He was kind of the first one to proclaim Jesus as the Messiah. And Jesus' response is a little bizarre. The first thing he does is change Simon's name. And then he behaves like, A, a home builder, laying a foundation, and then, B, a home owner, handing over the keys to a trustworthy tenant. He says, Simon, you will now be known as Peter, which comes from Petros, the Greek word for rock. But Jesus has a purpose in renaming Simon the rock, and it's not just in honor of Pete's hard-headedness and stubbornness. No, Jesus proclaims that it's upon this overly enthusiastic former fisherman that he will build his church, and not only build it, but actually hand over the keys for it. It's such a strange and powerful prophecy. Well, in Acts, we've already seen this prophecy come true a couple of times. When the Holy Spirit arrived on the day of Pentecost, this huge monumental event that was really like a boot to the door of the kingdom. And so when the Holy Spirit arrived, it was Peter, uh, Peter the Rock, who stood up in front of this huge, bewildered crowd and delivered a sermon that served as the key for unlocking understanding in the minds of thousands of Jews. Later, in chapter 8, after Philip breaks ground for the church in Samaria, which, moving out from Judea, is the next sphere of the Great Commission, it's Peter who, accompanied by John, confirms this enormously significant expansion of the kingdom by traveling himself to Samaria, laying his hands on new believers, and turning the key that allowed the Holy Spirit to burst through yet another new door the door to the Jews, and now the door to the Samaritans. And the really amazing thing about that is that, as you know, the Samaritans were hated cousins of the Jews. And now Peter, the rock, serves as the foundation for them to be accepted into the church. Foundations and keys. Just as Jesus predicted, these would be the identifying factors for the apostle Peter. But today, we move beyond bringing the gospel to the Samaritans. As big a deal as that was, It's really nothing compared to the door that Peter will unlock in today's passage. In the mind of the Jews, this door was the thickest, most fortified, most unlockable door of them all, and that was the door between God's chosen people, the Israelites, and those impure, unclean foreigners, the Gentiles. Cornelius, who we talked about last week, Cornelius represented this Gentile knocking on the door, waiting outside patiently for his opportunity to enter the house and become part of the family. Well, today, Peter, the foundation and the keyholder, will be the first one to respond positively to those knocks on the door. So let's find out how the Gentiles were welcomed into the party. And by the way, when I say Gentiles, that's us. I, I don't really know anybody who is a Jew converted to Christianity. Most of the people that I know have met in the church are straight up Gentiles. So let's find out how we Gentiles became invited into the family, beginning with Acts 10 verses 9 to 16. At about noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, they being Cornelius's entourage, approaching Joppa, where Peter was, so as this entourage was on the way to Joppa, Peter went up to the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. But the voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. We'll stop there for now. So Peter heads up to the roof uh, to pray at noon, which wasn't one of the mandated prayer times as it was in the morning and the evening. But noon was a common prayer time for especially devout believers. In the, in the Old Testament, we saw followers of God like David and Daniel going up to the roof at noon to pray. And so that's what Peter is doing. He's showing his devotion by going at a, a non-mandated time to go and pray. And as verse 10 states, while he was praying, he became very hungry. Makes sense because it was noontime. And then suddenly he falls into a trance and catches a vision of Food. Peter is proof that in the same way that you shouldn't hit up Sobies with an empty stomach, you shouldn't prey on an empty stomach either. You might just end up changing the course of human history. But the vision that Peter has is a powerful one. A sheet, lowered down by its corners, containing birds and four-legged animals and creeping creatures. All the categories of animals in Jewish thinking, there's kind of on the earth, there are those three categories of animals. And that goes all the way back to the flood, all the way back to creation, back to Genesis 1. There's the four-legged animals, the beasts, there's creeping creatures, and there's birds. And so basically, all of the animal kingdom is coming down on this sheet to a very hungry man, and a voice commands Peter to slaughter and eat them all. God orders Peter to have a divine barbecue at noontime when he's starving. Sounds like a beautiful dream he's having, doesn't it? Well, maybe to a Gentile like you or me, but to a faithful Jew like Peter, however, more like a nightmare let me explain that you're probably at least vaguely familiar with some of the dietary restrictions placed on israelites and even jewish people today and even not even jewish people muslim people have very similar dietary restrictions there's some branches of christianity that follow these same dietary restrictions things like no blood which is one of the very first commands that god ever gives humanity don't eat blood but probably most famous is no eating pork Jewish people aren't allowed to eat bacon. That's why we pray for them. But for a full list of these dietary restrictions, just have a flip through Leviticus 11. You'll see that cows are okay, but geckos are not. So hands off those geckos. Chickens and quails are okay. Owls, seagulls, ravens, vultures are not okay to eat. Feast yourself on tasty grasshoppers like our friend John the Baptist. Have as many grasshoppers as you want, but you better spit out that ladybug you were planning on eating. Because ladybugs are forbidden. Grasshoppers, crickets, anything that hops with a jointed leg, that's okay. And so it's a substantial list and kind of bizarre to our modern ears. But two words stick out in in Leviticus 11 more than any other two words. And those words are clean and unclean. Those are the only two categories of potential food for a Jew. There was absolutely no middle ground. Even food that was deemed clean had to be properly prepared and purified before it could be eaten. So there was all these restrictions on what could couldn't be eaten. And even the things that could be eaten, there was rules about that as well. It It sounds harsh to us, but... I don't know who Willeman is, but Willeman has this great quote that I want to uh, give to you. He says, it's important for us to remember that the dietary laws are not a matter of mere etiquette or peculiar culinary habits. They are a matter of survival and identity. So God didn't give them these dietary rules just to make them weird and different. It's not a matter of proper properness at the table. To be a Jew, to identify as an Israelite, is to follow these rules. So in other words, much like circumcision, or the Passover, or feasts and offerings, or following the tabernacle around the wilderness, those are things that we identify intrinsically with the Israelites. Well, another one of those defining intrinsic characteristics of God's firstborn children, the Israelites, was the food that they did and did not eat, could and could not eat. It's not like Oh, I'm a Canadian, so I stereotypically eat poutine and ketchup chips. It's more like, if we ever catch you eating anything other than poutine and ketchup chips, you'll be deported to Baffin Island and cut off from the rest of Canada. Oh, and God won't accept you anymore either. It was a big deal. They took these dietary restrictions very, very seriously. Why? Well, because God told them to. It was God's idea. It wasn't their idea not to eat pork. They probably really wanted to eat those geckos, but they couldn't because God said not to. Which puts Peter here in the throes of his ecstatic vision in a rather difficult spot. The first time that the voice commands him to look at all those unclean animals and then lay his hands on them and then spill their blood and consume them, Peter refuses, flat out refuses. And it's significant because he clearly recognized the voice. He knew who was talking to him. I don't know if he, it was the, the voice of Jesus he had heard for three years, now again in his ear. But he addresses the voice as Lord. He knows who's talking to him, and yet he still refuses. Even though he knows that this is a divine command, Peter resolutely disputes it. He says, no, I have never eaten anything profane or unclean. The insinuation, of course, is, I've never eaten that garbage, and I ain't about to start now. It's He's adamant that he's not going to eat this stuff. He refuses to eat unclean food based on an old command from the Lord, but he cannot reconcile this with this new command he's getting from the same Lord. Even though he followed the old rules given by the Lord not to eat those things, when he's confronted with the Lord again now saying, eat them, he can't do it. That's how that's how deeply ingrained these dietary restrictions were in, in Jewish people like Peter. And so Jesus reinforces his command with this beautiful, irrefutable piece of wisdom. He says, Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Ah, that's the key right there. The key that will eventually be used by Peter to unlock this door to the Gentiles. But for now, it doesn't quite sink in, partly because of the difficulty Peter has with reconciling this new command with the old one, and partly because of the certifying nature of the Lord declaring something three times. And Peter's familiar with this. Three times he denied Jesus, three times Jesus asked Peter point blank, Peter, do you love me? You know I love you, Lord. Then feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Throughout scripture, whenever God says something three times, that is God's stamp of approval on it. It's why the angels in heaven in Revelation, they don't just say, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He is the essence of everything that is holiness. Three times means perfection. And so here we have the Lord saying to Peter three times, take and eat. And still Peter doesn't understand. Still Peter doesn't get it. The vision reoccurs to him two more times before the sheet is taken away and the matter is settled for good. Now, Interestingly, this isn't the first time Peter has heard this from the Lord. In Mark 7, Jesus and his disciples are in trouble with the Pharisees. Hard to believe, I know. What is it this time, Pharisees? Well, this time it's because none of Jesus and his merry band of disciples, none of them are washing their hands before they're eating. Now, admittedly, that is kind of gross. We tell our daughters to wash their hands after they've been playing outside and come in to eat. But it's not law-breakingly impure. They don't wash their hands, and it's not that big a deal. It's not law-breakingly impure. Except to the Pharisees, who begin judging Jesus for his ritual impurity according to their traditions, and that's the key. There's no law in Scripture about needing to wash your hands before you eat. So Jesus doesn't care about it. He doesn't do it. There's no law. He's free to not wash his hands. But to the Pharisees, it was a huge deal because it's one of their beloved rules that they worship. And so Jesus has this to say in Mark 7. He says, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it's what comes out of a person that defiles them. So you're not made impure. You're not, you're, your value isn't taken away because of what you take into your body, ingest. Obviously, we still need to watch what we consume. But what comes into us isn't as important as what comes out the words we say, the judgments we have, the way that we treat people. And then, after after Mark records Jesus as saying that, immediately after that, Mark breaks from tradition. He does something that is incredibly uncommon in any of the Gospels. Um, Mark, who had studied under Peter and likely gained most of his eyewitness accounts from his Gospel from Peter himself, Mark adds an editorial note explaining the significance of Jesus' teaching. In Mark seven nineteen, Mark stops the narrative to have this little bracketed aside. And he says, In saying this, Jesus declared all food clean. This vision that Peter had here in, in Acts 10, this vision that he had so impacts Peter that years later, when his disciple writes a biography on Jesus, Peter ensures that Mark takes the time to explain Jesus' controversial teaching explicitly in Mark 7 declaring that all food is fit to eat. You don't have that often in the Gospels, where the Gospel writer stops to explain what Jesus is saying. That's the point of his parables. His parables are so that those who have a heart ready to hear it will hear it and understand it. Those who don't have that heart, don't. And so it's strange for any of the Gospel writers to step up and say, this is what Jesus means. But it's easy to see why Mark would do that based on Peter's vision. It's crucially important. It's foreshadowing for what, for what Peter is going to experience in the book of Acts. So obviously, the fact that God commands Peter to eat unclean foods is enormously significant. God is actively amending one of the, his most precious sets of laws to his people. That, that's a huge deal, obviously. But the most significant aspect of Peter's vision isn't just the fact that there are unclean animals on the sheet. The most significant aspect of the vision is that there are unclean animals mixed with clean animals on that sheet. It's the blending of the sacred and the sacrilegious, the proper and the profane, the blessed and the blasphemous. That's the truly revolutionary part of this new command. The Lord instructs Peter to eat it all. So yeah, Peter, do you see what's on the sheet? Do you see the cows? Do you see the geckos? Eat them both. Do you see the chickens and the quails? Yeah. Do you also see the vultures and the crows and the seagulls? Eat them all. Do you see the grasshoppers? Little bite-sized snacks? Eat those. But do you also see the the spiders and the, the centipedes? Eat those too. All of it. The clean and the unclean. Why? Because there is no longer any such thing as an unclean creature. All creatures are now purified and prepared for supper. I'm going to say that again because it's crucially important. There is no longer any such thing as an unclean creature. All creatures are now purified and prepared for supper. That is the importance of the vision. And Peter's about to have that purpose put to the test. Let's read verses 17 to 33. While Peter is wondering about the meaning of the vision, see, he still doesn't quite get it. While he's wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I am the one you are looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We have come from Cornelius the Centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to have you come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them and some of the brothers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up, saying, Stand up! I'm only a man myself! Talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or even visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, Four days ago I was in my house praying at this hour, at three in the afternoon. Suddenly, a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us, and I'll end there on a cliffhanger note for next week. So, as Peter ponders the meaning of the dream, Cornelius' entourage arrives. The Holy Spirit comforts Peter and confirms his purpose for Peter, telling Peter to get up and go with the three men at his gate, which he does. After meeting the men and inquiring why they are there, they then enlighten Peter as to their master's role in all of these events. And we are given a reminder of Cornelius' qualifications for this crucially important and beautifully sacred undertaking. He is a righteous, God-fearing, god fearing and well-respected man. And he's, he very much wants to hear what Peter has to say. And so at this point, because we spent so much time last week talking about Cornelius, and because I kind of painted Cornelius as the enemy, um, there's a reason why, and I'll kind of get into it again. I, I want to go over some of the slides from last week uh, just to, to re-emphasize Cornelius' importance. And so first of all, Cornelius was chosen to have a role in this incredible narrative because his was not a religion based on cold morality or self-righteous rules, or heartless worship. That's what it had become for groups like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Cornelius's was a religion that was, represented true worship. And what is true worship? Well, when Jesus was asked that question, what was his response? To love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. All the, the essence of the law and the prophets and, and the scriptures boils down to those two things. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Cornelius is a beautiful example of those two things. Cornelius' constant prayers to the Almighty represented the Godward direction of his heart, loving God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, while his acts of charity represented his neighbor-word direction of his heart, loving his neighbor as himself. And so that's why Cornelius, of all the Gentiles in Peter's day, And, by the way, Cornelius, a Roman centurion, of all things, who represented Rome, the oppressors of God's people. But it's it's because of his heart that Cornelius was chosen, among all the Gentiles, to be this man with this sacred purpose. But what was the purpose? Cornelius' purpose was to serve as a bridge between two worlds. Cornelius' job as a centurion, as the face of Rome, cornelius's job represented everything that was wrong with the world outside of judaism but his heart represented everything that was good and true and beautiful about the world inside of judaism and so he was chosen to be the one the bridge who was instrumental to bringing those conflicting worlds together into one kingdom as i mentioned earlier it was cornelius's knock on the door that would be answered by peter the key master Even though Cornelius was ostensibly an enemy of God's people, his heart demonstrated that he was just as much a part of God's family as Peter himself was. Cornelius was just as pure as Peter. And this brings us back to Peter's vision of the animals. I mentioned earlier that the vision of the animals meant there is no longer any such thing as an unclean creature. All creatures are now purified and prepared for supper. Well, when we say creatures, we tend to think of animals, For sure. But you are a creature and I am a creature. I have been created by the creator, so I am a creature. And according to Peter's vision, there is no such thing as a ceremonially unclean creature. All creatures have been purified and prepared for supper. Of course, creatures like you and I aren't prepared for supper like, say, a turkey might be prepared for supper, thankfully. We're not plucked and stuffed and tossed in an oven to be prepared for supper. Rather, we are prepared by the blood of Jesus. His substitutionary sacrifice removes our crimson-stained rags and replaces them with pure white linens, like it says in Isaiah 1. And because we've been prepared by Jesus' death and resurrection and glorification, we're able to pull up a chair at the great feast of the King. We are prepared for supper. It's like we came came into the house with these dirty, filthy, working-out-in-the-shop, disgusting, oily clothes— And right away, we were sent to our rooms to clean up. Well, we weren't sent to our rooms. We were sent to our Jesus. And our Jesus cleans us up by his blood. We have these beautiful, beautiful dinner attire that we get to wear now. We are fully prepared for supper, clean and purified. There is no unclean creature anymore. That's true for you and I. Our examination of Cornelius last week was a helpful reminder to me that indeed there are no unclean creatures i need to stop seeing people around me as unworthy of the gospel or unworthy of my time or unworthy of my love or acceptance because if i can be made clean and pure anyone can be and this was the crucial lesson for peter as well this was the reason he initially refused to obey the lord's new command because he couldn't wrap his head around the idea of impure food being made clean just like he couldn't wrap his head around the idea of impure people being made clean, namely the Gentile people. Jews disassociating from Gentiles has a tradition that goes back as far as, and has the same purposes as, Jews avoiding pork and bugs and bats. The reason they avoided Gentiles was the same reason they avoided eating impure foods. In fact, one of the chief reasons why Jewish people refused to eat with or associate with or sit at the table with foreigners and Gentiles is because Gentiles didn't obey the dietary restrictions that Jews followed. You could expect a Gentile home to be filled with all sorts of non-kosher foods that you could come into contact with and be made as unclean as a leper. Is it lamb or is it weasel? One's okay, one isn't. You never know with those crazy Gentiles. And even if they did serve food that was okay to eat, like olive oil or bread, stuff that was okay for anyone to eat, even if they served that food to a Jew, the Jew still wouldn't eat it. The, the Israeli wouldn't eat it because you don't know how they prepared that food. This was a huge deal. Remember, what you ate was one of the signifiers of being in God's house, of being in God's family. And so you couldn't just eat whatever you wanted. If a Gentile serves you food, you have no idea where that food came from if that food had been, had come from worship of idols, if it had blood in it still, you just didn't know. And so you couldn't eat anything a Gentile ever gave you. And if you couldn't eat with a Gentile, that means you couldn't accept a Gentile. See, it was, it was improper for Peter to invite Cornelius's friends into the house with him, into the home of Simon the Tanner. These, this entourage of Cornelius's was a bunch of Gentiles. And it wasn't, Considered necessarily proper for Jews to welcome Gentiles into their home, but it was absolutely unheard of for a respected Jewish leader like Peter to enter into the house of a man like Cornelius. See Peter inviting the the, the Jewish entourage into his home to eat with him and sleep over at his place—that was like frowned upon. But it was totally unheard of for a Jew like Peter. To go to the house of Cornelius, a Gentile, to to enter his gates, go into his house, sit with him, teach him sacred things, eat food with him. That was totally unheard of. Now, Jesus did it all the time, and it always got him into trouble all the time. And so this was a deep, deep, deep deep-seated custom for Peter, to not eat in the home of a Gentile. And it required him seeing the same vision three times plus a bonus command from the Holy Spirit, hey, I sent these guys, go with them, plus hearing Cornelius' own vision. It took all of that. That's five visions. It took all of that before Peter could overcome such a deeply entrenched bias against the Gentiles. But he does eventually get it. And it does lead to a sea change among the people of God. And he does head off for Cornelius' house, finding it filled with the most ready and willing audience any evangelist had ever encountered. It's this house, and Cornelius must have been a wealthy man, and his house is filled with all these Gentiles eagerly awaiting to hear what Peter has to say to them. No evangelist, no preacher has ever encountered such a willing audience. And so when he, when, when Peter walks into Cornelius's house, Cornelius displays the proper customary respect that a soldier like himself would show to someone with the status of a genuine apostle of Jesus Christ. Cornelius is a man who understands the chain of command. He understands uh, subordination. And so when Peter comes in, he kneels down and begins to, some translations say, worship Peter, revere him like a god. But Peter is quick to deflect any such accolades. After all, the glory belongs to God alone. Peter establishes from the very minute that he walks into this Gentile home, that they are equals. It's hard for me to communicate just how earth-shattering that is. From the second he walks into the house, uh, Cornelius hits the ground in, in, in reverence to Peter and Peter stands him up, says, no, you and me, we're equals. We're brothers in this house together. I'm not above you in any way. Even though he's a Jew, one's a Gentile, they're both, as Peter says, I'm a man like you are a mere mortal like any other mere mortal in this house made worthy and pure and acceptable by their faith in God, not by their birth or their heritage or their status. Peter, Peter was not made pure because he had, because he was a Jew. He was made pure because of his faith in Jesus Christ. And that same status of purity is now being extended to Cornelius and the Gentiles at large. Just two days earlier, Peter would have turned up his nose and refused to even enter the house of this filthy Gentile. But now, two days later, Peter knows he isn't above Cornelius in any way. They are brothers in Christ, and that fact will change humankind for all eternity. After Peter asks Cornelius why he has summoned him, we're treated to a reminder about Cornelius' groundbreaking call from the Almighty. Our passage ends where our sermon ends today, with Cornelius eagerly saying to Peter, we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Setting up Peter's sermon in Acts and our sermon next week very nicely. The door is, however, for now, still closed for the Gentiles. But here's Peter as we leave the scene. Here's Peter eagerly digging around in his pocket in search of the greatest key that his master had ever left him in order to unlock the most formidable door to the kingdom, the door between Jew and Gentile. Next week, we will listen with joy as the door gets kicked down for good. After all, there are no longer any unclean creatures. Not all of his creatures look clean enough to associate with, but Jesus says the outside is of no importance whatsoever. It doesn't matter if somebody looks unclean. It doesn't matter if other people around us don't think we should be hanging out with this person, spending time with them, showing love to them. Who cares what it looks like? It only matters that we show love. That's all that matters. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Every one of God's creatures has the potential to be made clean. They have already been made clean by Jesus. And they they all have an open invitation to accept that cleanliness. We will never be defiled by the company that we keep. We will never be made unclean by those we are called to show love to. We can only multiply his holiness by spreading it to those who others deem unacceptable to receive it. Like Peter, we are key holders to the kingdom. Who will we admit into the door next?